Before Blog presents Neil Before Pod. Hello and welcome to Neil Before Pod, the podcast that has suicidal tendencies. Maybe a bit dark. It's a dark start. I'm your host, Craig, and I have come before you to lead a discussion about The Suicide Squad, not to be confused with Suicide Squad, which we talked about a number of years ago and we'll never talk about again, except possibly during this discussion. So to have this discussion, I scoured the globe for the worst criminals I could find. Didn't find any. So then I asked Kat. Hi. Hey. I mean... You don't know if I'm the worst criminal. Maybe I am. Well, if you were the worst criminal, you'd be in my super secret prison that's not very safe to be in. I think I'm so good that I'm not on any list. How about that? I'm very good at what I do. Yeah. Are the, the crimes that you commit just no one cares about? Probably, yes. Who knows? But Suicide Squad, and is a bit of a anniversary of sorts because your first appearance on this podcast was the last Suicide Squad movie they released. The first. (laughs) Yeah, it's a full circle we have come. I don't know how I feel about it being like, oh yeah, you know, like what a landmark, what a milestone. The Suicide Squad. Still one of our most popular episodes. Oh well, and I hope this one will be too. Hey listeners, how's it going? I'm stoked to be here as always. I don't know how stoked I am about this movie, but I guess we'll get into it. That is the plan. That's what we're here for. Let's just get into it then. Let's start with our non-spoilers, as we always do. So without spoiling the film for anyone, what did you think of it? It's okay. Out of five, I'd give it three. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. It's fun. It's an absolute romp. You can tell James Gunn did this. It has his musical flair all over and his particular quippy sense of humor, which is very fun, I will admit. I did enjoy a lot of the banter back and forth. A little too violent for me. I would tone it down by like 15%. There were a lot of moments where I was like, I don't need this. And I don't need this either. But here we are. (laughs) But yeah, I mean, we'll get into detailed reactions about characters and stuff. But I just generally thought Harley was great in this. And Bloodsport, Idris Elba's character. I just love seeing him cancel apocalypses, question mark. (laughs) I'm just here. I'm here for Idris. And the girl who played Ratcatcher 2, Daniela Melchior, I think steals the show. She's brilliant. She, She really carries a lot of this film and I'm glad that she got her big break here and I hope that she gets more Hollywood things that we'll be able to see her in because I think she's got a lot of potential. Yeah, I love this. I thought it was great. I don't know, it answered a need that I didn't know that I had for the cinema. So going to the cinema recently, I've been going here and there and I've kind of not been enjoying the experience of going. I've still been going and been sitting through the films and whatever, but I, you know, there's an unease that I tend to feel when in the cinema at the moment. But with this, I was just immersed completely. I was in it from beginning to end. I never felt any lull. I loved the characters. I do agree with you on the violence, but I'm pretty squeamish when it comes to that stuff. A lot of people enjoy violent things. I don't the Flash situation of pushing people over and running away is about my speed when it comes to superhero stuff <laughs> or people getting 
shields thrown at them and they get knocked over, but they don't bleed. That kind of stuff. That's more my speed when it comes to superhero stuff. But at the same time, I didn't feel like it was too prevalent. I don't think it was being gratuitous with it all the time. It wasn't constantly gratuitous. When it was on screen, it was gratuitous, but it wasn't that we've got an R rating. Let's do this every 10 minutes. It was deliberate and the, the action was deliberate, I thought. So I was okay with it when it happened. Yeah, I loved mm. it. And it was very much what the other one should have been. I will agree with that. I think this is the movie you think Suicide Squad is going to be, and then it isn't, and then you watch The Suicide Squad, and it is that movie. It's interesting also, not spoiling or anything, but I do think that it's a very interesting sequel. But is it? Because you don't need the first movie for this one to work, which is great. Not at all. I think a lot of the time there's an over-dependence on referencing the previous movie or referencing, you know, oh, hey, remember this? Ha ha. But this one absolutely stood on its own. I will agree also that the action was very deliberate. Every scene served a purpose. There wasn't anything that I was like, ah, I wish they would cut this. Didn't serve the story. Everything absolutely had a place. I think that just kind of goes to show that, and I think that about a lot of James Gunn's work, is that he kind of approaches things as a puzzle and everything fits together. And that's just very satisfying as a viewer to just kind of see that whole work and be like, ah, yes, great. So yeah, I'll agree with you there. And it's funny how DC panicked when Guardians of the Galaxy came out and thought, we need one of those, quick, recut our Suicide Squad movie so it's more like Guardians of the Galaxy. Throw in music and all that stuff and more jokes and whatever. And now we've got a Suicide Squad movie made by the person they were imitating in the last attempt. It's funny how things work out. That's Hollywood for you. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Okay, so shall we just launch into the spoilers and talk more in depth about these things? Let's do it. Okay, King Shark, do you want to take us into the spoilers? And? Yep, that's your hand. That's right. Let's start with Bloodsport, our lead character who... Has a name. Dubois, his surname is. Oh, yeah. It's used like a couple of times. Robert or it, something, yes. Yeah. It doesn't really matter. He's Bloodsport. And he's played by Idris Elba. And one thing that really stuck out at me is he has the exact same backstory as Will Smith from the previous one. Whoopsie. He's by his daughter who might get put in juvie or prison or whatever. But what stood out, because I remember thinking that in the trailer, I was like, that's just the same backstory. And it's a black guy playing a guy that shoots people with a slightly different name. So what are they doing here? But then when he had that scene with his daughter and they were just yelling at each other and there was clearly not a strong connection there. I was like, okay, this is different. This is a very different relationship. And he still feels beholden to her, but he feels like he's forced to be beholden to her rather than wanting to be beholden to her, which was different. It was a different connection. And... There wasn't the tearful reunion at the end, even though you did have the, that's my dad. He saved all those people. I'm now proud of him. Yeah. For some reason. That was a bit different. And I liked him. He was a great lead. I mean, he always is. Idris Elba makes cleaning look cool as well. <laughs> but yeah, his arc is he's forced to be a leader in a way where Amanda Waller says, you're going to be a leader of this team. And he's like, I'm not a leader. And it's like, no, yes, you are. And you're going to lead this team, even though you're reluctant. And if you don't, We'll blow your brains out, which is a good motivator for anyone, I would imagine. <laughs> so what did you think of Bloodsport? Did you think he was a good lead for the, the film and for the team and for the mission? Yeah, I think there's an interesting side of him. I think he makes a very good, tired, ugh, 
I'm not here for any of this. That's a mood on any day. Yeah, I kind of vibed with that, to be honest. <laughs> and kind of what I said in the intro, I just love seeing Idris Elba stop the apocalypse, fight kaijus in the street. Yes. <laughs> here for it. Just here for it. Disclaimer and apologies to the DC nerds in the audience, but I don't really know any of these characters. It's kind of the point. That's great. Good. Because I was just like, who's this? But his power's cool. And all the different nano bot gun things that he had on him, those were cool. And just the kind of escalation from one to the other weapon and stuff. That was great. I got very stressed when his helmet fell off and weird starfish things were falling from the sky and I was like, please protect your face. <laughs> and I really liked his relationship with Ratcatcher too. I thought the scene in the bus where they both share a personal moment about their fathers and what has made them who they are and how they come from very different approaches to childhood trauma, if you will, and how that ultimately is the crux of the relationship and what kind of gels the group together. So I thought that was really nice. A little on the nose, but it's fine. This movie ain't rocket science, so it's okay. So yeah, generally I did like him as a main character. I thought it was refreshing to just have a, a reluctant leader who's just, he's just tired, man. He's just really tired. But also for someone who murders indiscriminately he has a good head on his shoulders and i respect that and he's one of the few characters that gets a backstory not everybody does which is another welcome contrast to the other one where everyone gets endless flashbacks that don't end up meaning anything every single character <laughs> except slipknot and katana who just get brief mentions of stuff that's true his only backstory is he puts superman in the icu with a kryptonite bullet which is pretty it's smart. Superman he put in the ICU, we don't know, <laughs> but he's Superman of some sort. And James Gunn has said himself, it's not my problem, yeah. someone else will figure that out <laughs> later on. It's fine. <laughs> so you get the impression that that's why he's in there. Why he did that, you don't know. He doesn't seem like too bad a guy, so you get the impression he's just chasing jobs and a few jobs where got him in the wrong place. And I think that's a common theme throughout. A lot of the characters here is they're not necessarily bad people. They are criminals, but they have their own reasons for doing stuff, and maybe some of the stuff they did isn't that bad. Ratcatcher too. what could she have done? Doesn't seem like she did anything. Bank robbery, she said. Oh, yeah, using rats to... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Seems a bit of an extreme punishment to make her do this. A little bit, yeah. The lack of backstories was okay. I didn't mind that they didn't give us the, here's how they slot into this shared universe that we haven't built but are pretending that we have. I liked that they didn't do that because I wasn't that bothered. I'm okay with these are Z-list DC villains who are all technically expendable, except Idris Elba, we're not going to kill him. And they're all going to go into this situation and deal with it in their own way. And not all of them will make it out alive. In fact, most of them won't. <laughs> all the ones you expect might make it out alive. They really do hammer it in, though, that this is the Suicide Squad, just nobody's safe, which I guess if any movie was going to do this, it's this one. So fine. Very okay with that. And it is done with kind of a tongue-in-cheek approach a lot of the time. Some of the deaths feel very earned as well. I think that's all I ask as a viewer, really. What I loved about it was every character, no matter how small, had a moment where you remember who they are before they're snuffed out. That early task force, the diversion team that are there to be killed. Every single one of them <laughs> has their own little beat where it's, this is who they are. And they're yes. dead. 
the detachable kid, for example. <laughs> he was memorable in his own way. Arm Fall Off Boy was his comic book name originally. Oh, actually? Wow. Yeah, no kidding. But I loved it how his power is basically useless. He can move his arms forward, but only at the speed he would walk and then slap people. Yeah, he's just kind of trying to aim at people and things and can't really do it and just gets blasted. What did people think? Why did they think this was a good idea? It's not a good idea. (laughs) What use is this guy whatsoever? What did he do that was so bad to end up in this situation? Oh, good God, who knows? What could he have done? He can detach body parts, but he can only really control them as far as he can see them. Yeah. So he can go and lift something that's kind of across the room, but it's a bit Mm. Useless. But yeah, you had weirdly powerful characters like Mongal, who's related to Mongol, who's a intergalactic warlord who abducts Superman to fight in a gladiatorial arena and all that stuff. So oh, right. it's one of those, mm, we need a daughter or a niece or whatever she is. So she was weirdly powerful, obviously not in this because she was just killed immediately. And a few of the other characters were possibly heavier duty than they should have been, but some of them were just ridiculous. <laughs> there are a lot of ridiculous DC villains, like Javelin. He has a Javelin. Oh man, Flula Borg though. Who comes back. My goodness. So I love Flula Borg, have loved him since Pitch Perfect 2. He is amazing. <laughs> just hilarious, over the top. I'm pretty sure he just played himself with no doubt or hesitation just with a wig on and yeah i I was kind of like oh yay flula and then oh no flula (laughs) (laughs) but yeah great use of the javelin though later in the film it becomes quite crucial to harley's plot so a very nice kind of full circle moment yeah that expendable team that were at the start if you've seen the trailers you can pretty easily predict that they're not going to last long because they're not in any of the other scenes really they're only in the here's our lineup and you know that they're not going to keep a huge cast like that around for very long but it was still great to see them just do their thing and then get offed and i was quite happy not to watch jai courtney for any longer than that to be honest or pete davidson no thanks (laughs) (laughs) that is precisely the correct amount of pete davidson thank you I will say that whole first scene, I wasn't here for the violence at all. For me personally, because I share that with you in that I'm generally squeamish when it comes to loads and loads of blood, gore, and guts, and things like that. I very rarely see the point of using that kind of imagery, and this very nearly turned me off the whole thing. It was like, ooh, we're starting like this. Strong start. I hate it. Five minutes in and you're like, nah, I'm out. A little bit. (laughs) But because obviously we were reviewing it for this, I was like, obviously I'm going to watch the rest, but let it be known I'm not a fan (laughs) of this level of violence. (laughs) Yeah, even as it was funny, (laughs) a lot of these characters, the way that they died was spectacular and kind of hilarious. And what the heck is Weasel even? (laughs) I have a lot of questions. But I'm, I'm afraid I don't want the answers, so we're just going to leave it there. He killed 27 children, but he's agreed to this. Yes, and also doesn't really seem to be sentient. Anyway, it's fine. It's a funny bit, and it keeps on giving, and it's great. And I will say that the opening with Savant, played by Michael Rooker, was really cool. Just kind of centering him. I love that he is James Gunn's muse. 
<laughs> I think that's awesome. And generally, I find brief cameos like that. There was also uh, Sean Gunn, who was m- way more prominent in Guardians. Well, he's Rocket most of the time, isn't he? Yeah, but he played Calendar Man <laughs> at the beginning, which was excellent. <laughs> I love brief cameos like that when you know that a director is buddies with people or, you know, family or whatever. So that's really cool. I like that. It is almost a statement of intent, that opening sequence, isn't it? It's, oh, 100%. Don't worry, we're not doing what we did last time. We're killing everybody. Nobody is safe apart from the people that are high up on the call sheet. So Idris Elba and Margot Robbie, probably going to survive this. Everyone, Everyone else. else is fair game. Maybe not. <laughs> yeah. And you had some decently famous actors in that opening as well, like Nathan Fillion and so on. But Nathan Fillion playing a ridiculous character that would never have worked if they'd left him in for any longer than that. It's a joke. The fact he can detach his arms is a joke, but it's completely useless. And the joke would wear thin, although saying that, Polka Dot Man is someone that shouldn't work and did. Yes. Suppose if they'd put some work in, they could have. But it's, it's the way James Gunn juggles these personalities and does it really well. So within seconds, you get a sense of who these people are. And then they're offed. Yeah. In the case of Weasel, I really like that he drowned. And did nobody check if the weasel can swim? (laughs) The incompetence of this office of people, because I remember in our discussion in the last one, Amanda Waller has this room full of analysts that she just murders on her way out because they have to keep the secret. Whereas now she has a team of people that she works with all the time and they're kind of useless in a way because they forget things. Bloodsport's rat phobia. Nobody checked that either and they're placing bets on who's going to make it out of the mission. It's that lived-in work environment that they have that I really bought into and I really believed it. Yes, where it's like you work with idiots. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. (laughs) They all kind of hate their boss and they're all goofing off when she's not around and things like that. When they uh, hit her up the back of the head with a golf club, a mood for a lot of people, I think. (laughs) Oh, yeah. I mean, it's a bit of a contrivance, isn't it? But it works. Yes. As you said, they're useless. These people are just kind of there to fulfill the role of there has to be someone on the other end of the headset. But what good even are you? A, the missed research and not knowing your team well enough, but just also being way out of their depth on this just as people not necessarily as analysts but they're all just kind of like oh no we were not prepared and it's like <laughs> yeah but this is your job kind of what are you doing what are you here for i will say the bets and stuff was very funny i really liked that as a plot point it brings to mind bake off and strictly come dancing sweepstakes <laughs> that I have participated in at work, whether I wanted to or not. <laughs> As you say, very lived in. And it gives you the sense that these missions happen quite regularly and they might be having to get used to different criminals. So maybe that's why they don't do a lot of research because they just don't think it's going to be worthwhile because they're not going to be around for long enough for anybody to care about. You get the impression that they just stick different photos on top of the suicide buttons and things like that. Mm-hmm. So really good stuff. There's such a small thing, but it, it just makes it all real. Yeah. It's a job. It's a nine to five. It's a day to day thing, which contrasts the lunacy that you're getting through all the <laughs> superpowers and gimmicks and so on, which is great. Back to Bloodsport. I did enjoy his beef with Peacemaker and the way they were introduced with the same bullet points, like raised by an assassin to kill since birth or whatever <laughs> it was. And they both get that same one. And you said we're unique and you've just told me this said the same stuff about him as you said about me and it's, I do it better and, and then they have that measuring contest that as the film progresses they're always trying to one-up each other yeah 
<laughs> which is really good. And it's great use of John Cena. I will always say that he's better when he's funny. He's great in this. I haven't seen Fast 9 because I haven't seen any Fast and Furious movies since Tokyo Drift. I think I've actually only ever seen Tokyo Drift. So <laughs> I feel like at this point, catching up is going to be an adventure. But John Cena, I think everything else I've seen him in really exceeds expectations. I don't know what I expect necessarily. I don't expect him to be awful, but he always stands out. And as you say, rightly, when he's funny, there was that movie with Amy Poehler and Tina Fey, Sisters. I haven't seen that one. Oh my God. He plays a drug dealer named Pazuzu. And He's great. He's honestly a highlight of the film. Love it. It's a pretty funny film anyway, but John Cena steals the show. Really liked him in this. Really liked his wardrobe. The really <laughs> dorky polo shirts and cargo pants and tidy whities And he's just this straight-laced... Is he supposed to be like a skewed Captain America or something? I don't know. Kind of. He's a blind patriot. Yeah. Which is dangerous. And it's making a comment on patriotism in general. Not a very sophisticated comment, but it's making a comment anyway. And he'll do anything if he believes it suits the country's interests. Again, you have to wonder why he was locked up, although he was the double agent in effect by the end. But you have to wonder how he was designated as a criminal if he's doing everything in America's interests or whatever. But I've tried not to think about that too much. But yeah, he's brilliant when he's funny. The film Blockers is the one I think of when I think of how great John Cena can be when he's funny. Uh Uh-huh. Where he plays a suburban dad and the joke is, look at him, he is not a suburban dad. Yeah. <laughs> the size of this guy. And they make jokes about it in the film as well, but they don't really address it. It's just, you're huge. And they say that. And Bumblebee plays a soldier that's quite funny. And Fast 9, he is not funny. Okay. At all. Someone's wearing platform shoes so that him and Vin Diesel are the same height. And he has a spray tan to match Vin Diesel's <laughs> skin tone and stuff like that. It's utterly ridiculous. As the Fast films are, and I'm not a fan of those films really, but I like John Cena and I really like him in this. Just the one-liners he has in a lot of cases, just brilliant. I would use smaller bullets. They would, yeah. <laughs> they wouldn't touch the, I think the sides. And <laughs> my favourite one was uh, nobody likes a show-off unless what they're showing off is dope as fuck. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> yes, that's true. <laughs> Very good turn from him. And I think he's a pretty cool dude just outside of his work. I'm glad that he seems to be having a good time making movies and being John Cena. Yeah, it's great. When he turned on the team as well, he was properly frightening. He was very threatening. I don't know if frightening is the right word. I wasn't scared of him, but I was, you mean business here. Yeah, it was gnarly. Absolutely. A very interesting last minute turn for the team to then have to face this dilemma ethical or moral do we do this do we do as we're told and keep this secret or do we let everybody know that our government has just been experimenting on people just a very cool turn to see someone being like no we have to keep it a secret because that's what's good for the country as you said earlier not a very complex point to make but there are people who do think like this and it's damaging and especially in the grander conversation about truth that we're collectively having in the world at the moment it was just interesting to see that play in here and he even admits that what went on wasn't right but at the same time he can't let the information out so it is that blind patriotism it's that it doesn't matter what i think yeah 
this is what I have to do. This is what I've been ordered to do. This is what I think is best for everyone out there to not know this information. I still think it's wrong, but at the same time, I'm just going to blindly follow these orders and make sure this information doesn't get out. I like that blast of, I guess, his code that mm. he follows, his personal code. It's all about the mission. It's all about what's best for the country. doesn't matter what I think. I think different things to this, but I'll still do it. And it's not something that they go into, and it's not something they really need to go into, I suppose. Something to do in his TV show that he's getting, mm-hmm. perhaps. Ooh. Maybe not here, but there's going to be a follow-up TV series. As the post-credit scene sets up. Oh, is that what that sets up? I thought it was setting up some kind of follow-up film again. No, no. Hmm. And I thought Rick Flagg was used really well in that context as well, because he is the one decent guy in there. He's signed up for the military for the right reasons, as in to fight for his country and so on, but he didn't want to lie to people and he didn't want to be part of a cover-up. I hated Rick Flagg in the last film, but I thought he was used really well here. They gave him a lot of personality and a lot of character, which he had none of in the previous one. Yeah, I was really surprised by him in this one. I disagree. I didn't think he had much personality here. I was like, if this guy wasn't here, I wouldn't miss him. I felt that he was there as the connective tissue from the first film, along with Harley, and that was the only connection that the two of them had. The others didn't really have a connection with him, and that was it, really. I didn't feel any particular way. I was just kind of like, oh, he's also here. Sure. I don't know underused Joel Kinnaman, I think. I was kind of surprised by how well he was used for me because there was little things like supporting the rebels, for example. Oh God, that whole plot line. Oh no, I have thoughts. Where he said to her, when we're distracting the guards, that means Mm. the palace will be unguarded. And there's almost that, I'm going off book here. He has a sense of what he believes is right and he'll do what he can in support of that. So stealing the drive is one thing. And obviously he's killed for it, so... Whatever. He won't be a problem again for anyone. But I felt like they kind of rewrote him from the ground up in this one because there was nothing to him in the last one. And I don't know if there's any intention to have any connective tissue, really. I think it's almost that this film erases the previous one because there is no connection whatsoever. It's debatable where Birds of Prey fits in in all this, if it fits in anywhere. I haven't seen it, actually. So a good question. I don't have the answer for you. (laughs) Neither did DC. (laughs) Yeah, they just don't seem to, do they? I will say that the plotline with the Rebels was very lackluster for me. If all of that was gone, I don't think we'd miss it. Also slap something about a resistance in there, I guess, to give them the moral, like, ooh, look, we're helping the resistance, but also we've killed a bunch of them, so (laughs) I don't know what this is about. And quite frankly, I don't think that we had enough time with those people to have any sense of us rooting for them if you know what i mean when they were sneaking into the palace i was like oh yeah right there's also those people when there's enough going on anyway i just find plot lines like that to be very extraneous and unnecessary the rest of the film works fine without any of that so what does that mean for your (laughs) subplot right there i don't know I wasn't invested in the subplot as such. It was a good way of giving texture to Courtroom Maltese as a setting, mm-hmm. as in it's politically messy. There's a government that isn't like, there's a rebellion against that government. And it's really supposed to give you a sense of Rick Flagg's moral compass as well, as in he supports their cause, even though that's not what they're there to do. They're there to do a specific job and he's supporting them. And then you have that joke about the Suicide Squad kill all the rebels Which is quite funny because I've seen it twice and the second viewing it is really noticeable that those 
rebels aren't a threat to them whatsoever. They're just doing their morning routines. They're not ready for a fight. They're not expecting a fight. And you've got Bloodsport and Peacemaker just blitzing through, just <laughs> murdering them all casually. And they're using it to keep score. And, and it's like, why didn't my guy stop you? Like, oh, whoops. It was for that joke, really. But yeah, a bit of texture to the setting was fine. I didn't really need the subplot and I didn't need it to go anywhere as such. But I was okay with it as a, this is part of where we are. Because it gives you a bit more than the, we're just in a place. Yeah, that's fair enough. I did enjoy the scene where they just murder everybody because I didn't know that they were good guys that they were murdering. And really that scene was there to set up the rivalry between Peacemaker and Bloodsport. So I see that function of it. And I do agree that, yeah, it does lend some texture but I forgot about them, honestly. As soon as we were out of that camp, I forgot that they existed. I forgot what had just happened. And then whenever they were on screen again, I was like, oh, right, there's those people. <laughs> you forget about them just like Milton. <laughs> yes, oh my God, Milton! <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's very good. Well done. I mean, Milton was one of them, so there you go. <laughs> <laughs> but it gives you the sense that there's unrest in this region. And that's ultimately why they're there, in a way. But they're not there to overthrow anything. They're just there to destroy the evidence that the US government's involved and then get out, which is a very Suicide Squad thing. And then you got a giant kaiju at the end, which is, some might say, out of place. I think it worked because it was just a bit of a ridiculous finale. Oh, sure. Weird, because in, <laughs> in the last one, you had a more ridiculous finale with high-powered stuff going on. And this wasn't as pointless as that was. It worked. It, it tied into everything else. I will say that the very end, and I suppose we are going to talk about the villains at the very end, but there was a sense of why have this monster be so hell-bent on this city and being like, this city is mine. But then when it dies, it's like, oh, well, I was just happy floating in space. Why not try go to space? Why are you trying to trample this city it doesn't matter it doesn't mean anything they're not even the people who caught you and put you there so if you're happy floating in space go do that i don't know i have issues with the personality question mark of starro and its motivations and how that relates to the suicide squad themselves but we will get to that when we discuss the action so i will hold my tongue <laughs> for now Maybe Starro just couldn't get back to space. It doesn't have the ability to fly into space. Maybe that's what it is. I don't know. It doesn't tell you, but maybe it's just too big now. Mm. And possessing this entire city is what I can do now, so I'm going to do it, is potentially what it is. It's a weird finale, but we will talk about it. Other characters, Polka Dot Man, I really liked it. I think David Dasmalshin, I think that's how you pronounce his name, possibly has the record for playing the most DC characters of any actor. Yeah. He's in this, he's in The Flash, he's in the long Halloween animated thing, there's other stuff he's done I think as well, so loves a DC role does this man. <laughs> yeah, I really liked him too. I thought the bits where everybody looks like his mom were hilarious. And the payoff was so good. Absolutely. Well. It was just, okay, great, we've had this set up, brilliant, let's go. Just a gigantic lady <laughs> trampling the city. 
brilliant. Chef's kiss. <laughs> Again, one of those characters that I was not familiar with. So when he was just vomiting polka dots in the forest, I'm like, what the <laughs> hell is going on? There's just a lot happening. I just have no idea. But it was cool. The trans-dimensional virus, it just worked. I like wacky things like that, but kind of used in a dramatic way. It was a lot. Poor guy, actually. And also the kind of reluctant camaraderie that he ends up finding with the others. That was really good, too. He was very human in his outlandishness, over-the-topness. There was something really sweet about him. He's a victim, and he's suffering from a form of PTSD, and he has a lot of issues that he hasn't resolved, and then I guess this helps him resolve them in a way, because he gets to lash out at his mother, who wronged him so long ago. I don't think they overused the he-sees-his-mother-everywhere gag. The best bit for me was when it was the shark. <laughs> and there was the bad dancing moment as well, where for some reason he was happy enough to be dancing around her. I don't know, weird. And then you've got John Cena doing weird dancing all to the side as well, which is a delight to watch. <laughs> but I liked Polka Dot Man and his death. I actually didn't expect that. I expected him to survive it and then he just get crushed unceremoniously, but... His arc finishes just before it happens. He's like, I'm a hero. And then, bam, yeah. dead. His death had meaning and it had impact. And as a character throughout, he's one of those, what I was saying, he's one of those characters who's not a bad person, clearly. It's not clear what he did to end up in that situation. Yeah. Not clear who caught him and brought him in and whatever. I, mean, I don't need them to explain, this guy was brought in by the Flash. This guy was brought in by one of the many Batmen that we have flying around. This guy was brought in by Superman. We don't need that. But just getting a sense of who these people are worked really well without needless exposition. And you got everything from Polka Dot Man that you need. Yeah, his Milton was a really nice guy. I liked him from the beginning <laughs> and all that stuff. I thought that was great. And I think he's very funny as well. He's funny in the Ant-Man films. He's funny in The Flash when he appears. He plays another DC villain in that show called Abracadabra, techno magician from the future, mm. basically. Not as good as this as a character, but... Very little in The Flash is as good as this, if anything, these <laughs> days. That show is dead on arrival at the moment. It's just, it's not good. <laughs> oh, no. I'm still watching it, though. Don't judge me. <laughs> I'm still watching it. <laughs> no judgment here. I suppose he had a bit of a back and forth with some of the team. I don't think he really had a core relationship as such. It was just, he was part of the team, and Peacemaker thought he was contagious and all that stuff. Yeah, good character. Very interesting character. Ratcatcher 2, I put Heart of the Team. She very much is. Yeah. She's keeping everyone together. She's keeping everyone sane. She makes friends with King Shark. She wants to help Bloodsport get over his fear of rats by exposing him to rats. <laughs> I, I loved her. I thought she was very good. I thought she was a great character. 100% agree. She carries a lot of this film on her shoulders. As I mentioned earlier, the core relationship that she builds with Bloodsport is great. But as you say, she has individual moments with kind of everybody in the team maybe aside from harley i don't know that they had any moment or no i don't think so a conversation now that i think about it does this movie pass the bechdel test i don't think it does <laughs> i don't think two named characters have a conversation that isn't about a man to be expected i suppose but still god man we could have had something between her and harley that could have been a fun little exchange i'm not saying you know make them best buds but something Anything? I really liked her backstory. It was actually kind of sweet. And great little cameo from Taika Waititi as a 
unkempt rat man in Portugal somewhere. Very interesting. I don't know that his accent checked out, but that's neither here nor there. Just Taika Waititi accent. That's the way he talks. Not even Taika Waititi accent, because that would have been hell on New Zealand, but... This was just kind of vaguely European, question mark? For his one or two lines. Yeah, Yeah, anyway, it's fine. It worked well enough. And yeah, just a very sweet, if not kind of gross backstory. Oh, yay, rats. We're just going (laughs) to sleep here with all these rats. Cool, lovely, delicious. But ultimately, I think it pays off in a very sweet moment for her at the end. And yeah, okay, that is the most powerful hero on this team, kind of, because rats are everywhere, and if you can control them, you got this. You got anything. So that's pretty neat. And just a very emotional moment where she thinks about her dad, and she thinks about what she's been able to achieve here, and his legacy living on, and that sort of thing. Payoff for her character, and making us see rats in a kind of different light. Also, side note, and I have to say this, One of the rats that plays Sebastian the Rat, his name was Crisp Rat. (laughs) Crisp Rat. Nice. Was in this movie. (laughs) Which I spotted in the credits and it was amazing. Oh my God. I was like, Crisp Rat, please, someone yell with me. I was there with my partner. We're both like, ah. (laughs) That was great. Yeah, thank you. Good rat catch. <laughs> well, I stick around for the credits always because I have this game where I like to look for Greek names in the credits. If the listeners don't know, I am Greek originally. And it's just a thing I've always done since I lived in Greece and I was just in the cinema trying to see if Greek people make movies too, you know? <laughs> and there were a couple, by the way. There was a man by the name of Tybalt who has a Greek surname, but a very French first name, and he's Canadian. And so I was like, hey, good job. Great. But then I spotted Chris Pratt and I lost it. (laughs) Absolutely (laughs) lost it. Also, protect Sebastian at all costs. I don't know that I felt more attached to a rat before this moment. How Sebastian survived this film is beyond me. (laughs) Yeah, I know. When he was swimming through the alien's eye, I was like, please, if Sebastian drowns here, I swear to God, (laughs) I just cannot. It'd be like Anthony the Ant in Ant-Man when it gets shot. Oh my God, exactly. (laughs) I can't. Too much pain. That just wasn't on the table for an expendable member of the team. Yeah. But yeah, she was great. I can't think of a single word that she said to Harley. I guess the closest is... Harley and the rats teaming up inside Starro, but that doesn't really count. Yeah. So she doesn't have that. But yeah, she has a moment with every one of the team. She's very strong. She's very confident in what she does. It's one of those, she appears very meek and personable on the surface, but when you cross her, she will go for you. Yeah. She will unleash her army of rats. And yeah, she's not to be trifled with. Her backstory was great, as brief as it was, and... It was really nice touch to have that closeness with our father and then she lost him at drugs and that was appropriately tragic and you had that joke about <laughs> Rat Catcher 2, what we couldn't afford, Rat Catcher 1. <laughs> like, now he's dead, we've got this one. <laughs> and she happily goes by Rat Catcher 2, which I guess shows how close she is to our father in a way because she won't take over his name. She will succeed him, but keep his name. Again, this is one of those characters that I had absolutely no prior knowledge of and so then it was just like okay rats i guess 
sure. Even the concept won me over by the end. I was sold on the concept of controlling rats is a superpower that's kind of cool. Wow. How? <laughs> in the same way that controlling ants is kind of cool. I keep coming back to Ant-Man for some reason mm. in this podcast. Don't know why. Just keep coming back to it. Since we mentioned Harley Quinn, it's a good opportunity to move on to her. She essentially suits herself. She spends a lot of this film doing her own thing, which I found strange in a way. And she obviously has plot armour at the start of the film when she's one of two survivors of the beach debacle. She doesn't actually do anything to survive. It's just dumb luck. She just stumbles about. And then she obviously has that thing with the... Is it the prince? Oh, yeah. Well, he's not a prince. They've just done a coup. He's some kind of general president person. I thought that was great. The way the romantic kind of bubble is burst but it was done in a very interesting way first of all her being treated like a princess was kind of new to her and like oh wow you know i get to be like this that's great but then by the end as she kills him that was just a thing of beauty (laughs) she was very fun throughout the film i think this is kind of the ideal just i'm glad to have her have a moment without necessarily having the Joker be there. I think there's an oversaturation of Jokers generally in pop culture and specifically the Jared Leto one. Please no, no thanks. And so I'm just glad that she's had, I mean, obviously she's had Birds of Prey, which I haven't watched. I'm really sorry. Bad film reviewer. But yeah, she was great in this. I just really, really enjoyed when she was doing her own thing. Yeah, just a really fun ride with her the scene when she's escaping and everything's cartoon flowers and birds and stuff think of beauty yeah because up until that point you can sort of forget that she's supposed to be insane yeah as in heavily insane as she's supposed to be but then her imagining the flowers and whatever as she's murdering people that brings that back yeah because up until that point she didn't do anything that insane really i mean she kills that guy in cold blood but she has a good reason for it she says i want to get out of unhealthy relationships and this is an unhealthy relationship so yeah i have to kill you i'm sorry i promised myself that i would get out of a relationship if there were red flags and killing all these people that's a red flag <laughs> specifically children she mentions children in the other suicide squad movie mm, okay it seems to be one of her buttons it's not something that there's a big through line on but To your point about the Joker, it seems that the character of Harley Quinn in pop culture has outgrown the Joker Mm -hmm. in terms of popularity and in terms of what people want from her because you have that Harley Quinn cartoon where Kayla Kyoko voices her. It's about her getting out of the Joker's shadow. Birds of Prey is basically about that as well. This, the Joker isn't even mentioned. The only mention really is her tattoos. At least one of them refers to him. So I think... The character's grown beyond the Joker at this point and doesn't need him. Whereas mm-hmm. if you watch the animated Batman series from the 90s, she's very much connected to him. And there's that abusive connection that they have. But since then, since she gained more popularity, writers have done a lot to get her out of there and let her do her own thing. And this is very much that. So she's got her own thing going on with the squad. She's friends with Rick Flag and wants to be friends with Bloodsport, even though she thinks he's called Milton when he's not. <laughs> things like that I do wonder if it's a function of the fact we've got Margot Robbie in this film we need to give her some scenes on her own and maybe there's some scheduling issues where we have to get her in doing her own thing for a while before she teams up with the rest because it's basically the last act before she hooks up with the others hmm. and everything else she's working with other people in different locations but the non-rescue bit was hilarious I wish it wasn't in the trailer because it was really funny 
seeing them trying to break in, and then she was like, what are you guys doing? <laughs> Idris Elba's on the wall, and he's ready to go in. Yeah. They're ready to kill the guy in the kitchen or whatever it is. I do think that that scene is longer in the trailer as well, so I was kind of expecting to see some of that, and then it was like, oh, okay, they condensed it. I mean, that's fine. It was kind of the funniest bit from the trailer that I think most people would remember anyway. But yeah, that, that was great. And I'm like, oh, I can go back and you can come rescue me if you want. <laughs> yeah, brilliant. She was good. I can't think of many major moments she had after that point. She would just make a offhand comment, such as when they captured the thinker and Flag was threatening him and she was giving her idle threats. You get personalised license plates, you die. <laughs> Cough without covering your mouth, you die. I'm walking back and forth. That kind of stuff. <laughs> yeah, that was great. I love that. I also really like, as I mentioned, the javelin full circle moment. She's been carrying it the whole film when she finds it again and she's like, well, I was told to carry it for, and then what? And then at the end, she's like, I know why I'm supposed to carry it. That's great. Well done. I'm happy for you. <laughs> happy for Flula. Except she doesn't because she doesn't know anything. Again, she's insane. Yes, absolutely. But she has that moment. It counts for her. So let her have it. Yeah, she thinks she knows why exactly. she does it. And that's enough. <laughs> exactly. Although that jump she does up onto a roof, I was like, that's inhuman. Yeah, I thought so. I noticed that too. I was like... Okay, wow, I did not know that she was able to do that. She shouldn't be able to. She's just human. She's just crazy. That's it. <laughs> she had a javelin. She could have used it to vault up, but she didn't. She just jumped. It was crazy. But apparently Margot Robbie did that breakout bit with her foot and stuff. Oh, yeah. I don't know exactly how much of it she did, but that was something that I read a part of. I should have probably researched it more thoroughly. But <laughs> no, she actually did this. And maybe she did. If she did, then she's an escape artist and should consider a career change. Yes. <laughs> so that was Harley, King Shark. I don't think there's a lot to say about him. He's very much the comic relief and there's nothing really more to him. They mention he might be the descendant of a shark god, but we don't know. He's yeah. just a bit dumb and strong and invincible. and Makes you wonder, could they have killed him by detonating a bomb inside him if they wanted to? Probably not, but... I think he was great as a comic relief and wasn't overused, which was the key thing. Absolutely. It was so easy to just throw him in everywhere. And yeah. The gags were hilarious. The reading the book upside down, constantly wanting to eat everything was brilliant. For sure. I think my favorite moment was when he finds the little cute things in the aquarium inside Jotunheim. And they're just adorable and kind of googly eyed, colorful. And he's like, oh, wow. Okay, great. Made your friends. And then it turns out they're just bloodthirsty sucker monsters but small and adorable that was pretty great i think i'll largely agree with you great comedic relief definitely not overused actually a couple of really sweet moments where you just realize that he is not considered by many people in any kind of serious way and so when people do he's like oh wow with rat catcher becoming friends with him and that sort of thing just a couple of very touching moments that i enjoyed one moment that i really felt for him was when they were all in the bar enjoying themselves and it cut to him just sitting in the bus. Yeah, and he's just looking and he just wants to be part of it. Yeah. And he scratches his face or whatever. There's a gesture that he does that's just, I'm so bored or something. Mm -hmm. like that. Just, there was a lot of emoting and Stallone's vocal performance was excellent. Yes, absolutely. It took me a while to realise that that was Sylvester Stallone. And then I was like, <laughs> of course, who else could it be? That's great. He was very good. Stallone's really good because he can be the articulate guy and he can just be the... The meathead idiot, and he was doing the idiot voice for King Shark. He doesn't have a lot of dialogue, but it all really works. Mm -hmm. And obviously the depth of the voice makes you believe that he's a shark. The one thing that 
sort of bugged me about him as I had no real concept of his power level. So I didn't know, is he invincible? Is he ever in any danger? It didn't seem like it. He bleeds and stuff, but it doesn't seem like there's ever going to be anything that can kill him. Yeah, he bleeds because those things have teeth and they sank into him and it was awful. But he was bulletproof. And obviously the explosions and stuff didn't do anything. And the building and rubble and things didn't do anything. So, yeah, a very good question. I don't know that I particularly cared for the moment where he tears someone in half. I suspect that it was just because it's a big moment for the cinema audience to just be like, wow. Yeah, cool shot. For the collective experience, really, more than anything else. And I think it works on a big screen, but on home release. Sometimes I'm just very hyper aware of scenes or shots that are there for the cinema experience, but won't work elsewhere. And also, side note, that was too violent for me, but that's another story. (laughs) I'm not going to harp on on that for very much longer. I think we've mostly exhausted that subject, but that was one of those moments that I was just like, ah, okay. It's when he showed up and he was just munching on this head of one of his victims. Yes. (laughs) It's incredibly violent and kind of disturbing and very disgusting, but it's also really funny. It's just him just snacking on this head that he's carried with a fun character and Real risk of it being overused, but he wasn't, which was good. When he made the little peacemaker, the C4 dummy, that was funny. Yeah, very cute. It's really nice. Doesn't look anything like me. <laughs> <laughs> I enjoyed him a lot, and I hope that we'll get to see him again in something. But I don't know. Will the novelty wear off? Who knows? You'll know this because you're the DC expert here, but is he an Aquaman villain? He's tends to be a Flash villain. Interesting. Okay. I think he's fought everybody at some point or another, but there is a version of King Shark that prominently appears in the Flash TV show. He appears generally once a season, but not this season. And he's voiced by Solid Snake, David Hayter, in that show. Oh, interesting. Okay. And in that show, his backstory is that he's a scientist that was trying to cure cancer or something like that and turned himself into a giant shark. As one does. (laughs) In comic books, it's always a risk. I love comic book logic. It's great. Whereas this one has an implied, completely different backstory. It's just we found this thing somewhere. We don't know what it is. We just know it's powerful and can't be killed, which is a great asset for us. And that's all they know about King Shark and this. And it's a DC thing, so there's multiple possible origin stories for any given character you can think of. Just the way it is. Yeah. And it doesn't matter. We don't need to know where he comes from. We just need to know that he's there, which is good. The uh, Flash version in the TV show looked great, actually. One of their impressive CGI creations. I will send you a clip after this. Oh, thank you. you Another character that's prominent is Amanda Waller. You'll remember we both had very little nice to say about her in the last film that she was in. But in this, she's much better. She seems more real and it's that fully committed to the fact that she's morally bankrupt. You'd be surprised what I would do or whatever the line was. Oh yeah, you'll be surprised what I'm capable of. Actually, yes I could. I have to admit, I don't much remember her in the first one being like this. I don't much remember her at all. I have to say I have deleted most of that movie from my brain. But there's something interesting about having the authority figure be so very clearly in the wrong from our perspective as the audience and to see the villains struggle with that. What these kind of movies do best is kind of turn that moral compass upside down and let that play out and see what happens. It's interesting in this film because 
there is an open question about who you're supposed to root for because it can't be Amanda Waller because she's worse than all the other people that she's forcing into these situations. Yes. And I do think they cheat a bit by making Bloodsport and Ratcatcher 2 and Rick Flag and Polka Dot Man not such bad people. Yeah. In a way, they're not villains, so they didn't lean into the whole villainous aspect of those characters mm-hmm. as much as they possibly should have. But I guess that's a conceit you have to live with if you want a general audience to respond to this. Mm-hmm. If you fill a film with horrible, irredeemable people, then your audience will switch off because they don't know who they're supposed to support, I guess. I will agree, yeah. They definitely downplayed the villainous status of all these people. And Bloodsport, he's in prison for killing a bunch of people. <laughs> we watch him kill a bunch of people on camera. It's not even off screen. It's very much on screen. But there's a humanizing and relatable aspect to him that we kind of focus on as the f- film goes on. And something else, which we touched upon a little bit earlier, which was the clubbing Amanda Waller up the back of the head with a golf club. Hear me out. I have a question about the fate of those office lackeys post this movie, because they hit their boss in the head with a golf club. And then she just kind of looks at them from her office like, ugh, I guess those people hit me up the head with a golf club. And I'm just like, what is acceptable in this workplace in terms of just acceptable levels of violence? When you disagree with someone, can you just throw a glass in their face? What goes on? I have some questions about this workplace culture. <laughs> is there HR? What are your rules? <laughs> Does she get fired there or do they after a conflict like this? These are the questions that I have <laughs> after watching this film. The sequel is going to be everybody attending disciplinary meetings. Yes. <laughs> As a working person and union rep, I have questions about employment law in this place and how that factors in. I suppose it's a top secret outfit. Non-union then, I guess. <laughs> she also had a lot to deal with after that point because she had lost quite a lot of high value assets. True. Good gone rogue and made a deal that she had to follow otherwise this information would leak and i actually really like that that whole i've uploaded this information at a secure server you come anywhere near me or any of these people ever again and i will release it rat catcher 2 looks at him as if to say what and he's like come on we can't have everything yeah we have to compromise somewhere and that was good we have leverage now Mm. and as soon as we lose this leverage we're dead yeah we sell these bombs in our skull which they can probably get out i would imagine they can just Get some back alley operation and get rid of them. Yeah, some black market doctor in the back of a van or something. The Paul Rudds of the world. (laughs) So yeah, I think that the analysts that Amanda Waller works with are probably okay. I realize I said the Paul Rudds of the world. This is very specifically a reference to a movie called Mute, in which Paul Rudd is a back alley doctor who does things for criminals. (laughs) I did get that. No, I knew you would get it. But then I was like, if people haven't seen Mute, which I'm pretty sure is on Netflix, but if it isn't, look it up. It's a pretty fun film. But I realized we've talked a lot about Ant-Man in this (laughs) episode. And people would think, wait, what? He's not a doctor. Different film. But yes, sorry, go on. Paul Rudd just shrinks down, climbs inside them and... (laughs) That's absolutely a thing that he could do. (laughs) A solid plan. (laughs) But I think those analysts are probably fine because Amanda Waller has bigger things to deal with. I suppose so. But how do you go back from that is my question. You've done that to your boss. You've done that now. And then if there's no disciplinary 
action, is that okay? Is that implied to be an okay thing to do? Can you do it again? If she just pisses you off, if you disagree on something, if she tries to kill more people, because she will, because that's her job. She had it coming. Those are the questions that plague me, honestly. There's just a lot of unknown factors. <laughs> I guess they didn't make enough of them being invested in defeating Star or thinking that was the right thing to do. I thought the moment was really tense where everyone led by Bloodsport was turning around and walking towards the giant creature to defeat it because they had a crisis of conscience or something like that, whatever it was. Certainly Bloodsport did. And then Ratcatcher 2, she's a good person anyway, followed for that reason. Polka Dot Man again, for that reason. Harley Quinn, just everyone else is doing it, I might as well. King Shark, yeah, I'm dumb. I'm just going to follow these people because I don't know what else I'll do. So their motivation for turning round and going after it was fine. And then it was quite tense. It's like, stop it, stand down, turn around. It's not your problem anymore. And it keeps that open question of what reason is it going to be for her not to press those buttons? Yeah. Because she's not going to have a change of heart. So the only thing that can happen is someone knocks her out. But I don't think they really established that they hate her. Yes. As much as they needed to. And also, I don't think that they established that they were necessarily rooting for whoever's left on the suicide squad. Could be the one that hit her has a lot of money on those guys making it out alive. <laughs> <laughs> We don't know. There's not time to really give you the deeper insight into that you, that you need. But at the same time, I guess it works. Someone has to oppose Amanda Waller and that's fine. I did like the little moments of not quite humanity that they gave her, but the sense that she is a person outside of her job, which you don't get in the other film. Her putting into beakers and things like yes. that. Just little character beats where it's like, oh no, she does actually do things outside of this musty, windowless office with poor lighting. It's not much, but it's something. Yeah, absolutely. And Viola Davis is quite intimidating as well. She does a great job. Oh, hell yeah. If anybody's watched How to Get Away with Murder, that's Viola Davis being intimidating for several seasons straight. <laughs> or her turn in Widows was great. I love that film, actually. She is absolutely great at putting you down with one single stare. That's it. <laughs> Very powerful. Yeah, it's one of those weird things when they were casting this version of the film and Viola Davis is coming back. Yeah. Rick Flagg's coming back. I forget the actor. Joel Kinnaman, he's coming back. Oh, yes. Really? And Harley Quinn. Well, obviously, Margot Robbie's going to be there because they'll throw her in anything. How many Harley Quinn projects are in development at the moment? Uh, I don't know. Who knows? Many. <laughs> <laughs> How many will get made? Turns out, probably all of them. <laughs> Dangerously approaching oversaturation levels again, but that's another story. We'll see how that goes. She's only had three appearances and two of which you should pay attention to, so it's not too bad. Don't watch the first appearance of her character. This film essentially erases that one anyway. Yeah. It's just basically what DC are telling you, Warner Brothers telling you. Just don't worry about this other one. This one's the one. This is the real one. It's a little bit frustrating, though, I will admit, to make a fanfare about the first film and then be like... Yeah, no, never mind. This is the one. It wasn't even that long ago. Can you decide, please? But that's DC for yeah. you. They keep doing this. <laughs> Release the air cut. <laughs> oh, boy. Yeah, I've been reading a bit about David Ayer saying there will never be an air cut. That's enough. Stop asking me. <laughs> it probably won't happen because the Snyder cut effectively failed. Yeah. In fact, it failed so hard that AT&T sort of broke their ties with Warner Brothers. Ooh, yikes. Yeah, they're not doing this anymore. They're not going to release alternate cuts of things that cost money to put together. And in the case of the Snyder Cut as well, they brought someone in to f change the film. Whereas with the air cut, we've seen so much of his footage already. 
It was maybe deployed poorly, but we've seen a lot of it. It's not that anybody came in to finish it. It was just cut in a different way by somebody. Mm. Don't know who. Some trailer house. Who cares? But I'm not convinced the air cut will be any better, even though he calls it a soulful character drama or something like that. Mm. I really doubt it. I don't think any film with Harley Quinn in it will be ever considered a soulful character drama. <laughs> That's not to say it won't be good. It just won't be that. I just don't want to see it. If it comes out, I'll watch it, sure. But... It's not going to come out. <laughs> Back to this film. In terms of plot, I liked that we didn't really have a central antagonist. It was more a situation that they were dealing with. You could argue that the Thinker or Starro were a central antagonist, but they were more just roadblocks along the way. But they were in to do a thing, and doing that thing meant that they interacted with these two other things, mainly. And I liked the Thinker. I think Peter Capaldi's great, and I thought him in that role was pretty excellent. He was wonderfully off the wall and morally bankrupt and i'm all about the science i don't really care about experimenting on people i'm all about the science and now some stupid coup is getting in the way of 30 years of work yeah very cartoonish in the best possible way don't mind me i am the thinker i have weird blinky lights attached to my brain but i'm just gonna go to this strip club and drink some whiskey or tequila or whatever it is and just hang out here we just hang out and chill here it's great was it Frenette it was called? Was oh, yeah. They drink, wherever they are. He had those electrodes in his brain and stuff. There was a version of The Thinker in The Flash as well. A different name. I forget the name they gave him in this film, but it's not Clifford DeVoe as it was in The Flash. Mm. Again, DC characters are different origins and interpretations and whatever. There wasn't really a sense of him being a mega genius as such. He was just some weird guy with electrodes in his brain who was experimenting on people. I've watched Peter Capaldi anywhere. I think he's brilliant. Oh, yeah. The bit where Ratcatcher says to him, do you want to experience what it's like to have rats up your ass? And he's like, the answer may not be what you expect. Exactly. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> what a brilliant moment. I think my partner and I didn't stop laughing for a full three minutes after that. You went there. That's great. Love that. <laughs> and then there was the brief depiction of the fact that he'd been mistreating Starro all these years. And then Starro got its own back by ripping him apart. Yeah. So, again, you're not supposed to pay much attention to the thinker. He's a means to an end. He's only there to get them into that location, and that's about it. Hmm. That's his purpose. But he's entertaining along the way, and I like when they were trying to get him out. It was at the same time that the military were in looking for Americans, so let's send a Portuguese person to get him out because it would draw less suspicion and things like that. Idris Elba's British. They didn't say look for British, but maybe in Corto Maltese, American and British is basically the same thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a clever little touch. I looked it up that they were filming in Panama. A very interesting choice because I don't think very many movies do that. It looked great. It looked that kind of sticky hot, didn't it? Yes. <laughs> oh, I wouldn't like to be there. Just, <laughs> just be unpleasant. Court of Maltese is a common suicide squad hangout in the comics as well. Oh, okay, cool. You normally get sent into places like that because it's one of those places that can just stand in for anywhere, more or less. Mm -hmm. Vaguely Eastern European type hellhole with gangs and whatever right military dictatorships all that kind of stuff yeah and that's all it was in dc tradition we made up a place so nobody will be offended by us connecting it to a real place <laughs> yeah exactly i quite enjoyed harley's little what do we even call people who are from here <laughs> and it takes her quite some time <laughs> to be like oh of course then she gets told what's it corto maltesians maltesians yeah she's like oh of course it is yeah <laughs> <laughs> deliberating over it for ages as she's stuck in the hole waiting for release i suppose and yeah. for something to happen 
So, yeah, having a situation rather than a villain, I think that's something a lot of comic book movies could start doing because how many of these podcasts do they come out being like, we liked it, but the villain was crap. Why not just not have one? Yeah. And again, Starro, but Starro isn't really anything. It's just a thing that they have to defeat, that they shouldn't be able to defeat, but they do. Okay, so we're here now, so let's talk a little bit about the bits that don't make sense about Starro and that whole action bit. Because as far as... Here's a sentient kaiju that also has mind control capabilities. It's actually quite sinister and really spooky. And when they're in the deep, dark basement and all these people are just kind of like, oh, yes, hello, like, so everything kind of happens. Things blow up. Everyone's outside. Starro makes it outside and then just kind of leaves them he just kind of spares the suicide squad and just kind of goes don't mess with me and my city i'm gonna go walk all over the city with my big squishy starfish legs and just doesn't do anything to them somehow and that bothers me they all have plot armor plot armor yeah as he was walking away into the distance and they're like yeah okay i guess we'll let him do his thing and i'm like why are you even alive i was (laughs) anxious about blood sport having lost his helmet and all these things were coming at him and he was shooting them in the sky but i was like i bet you he misses one and it just hits his face and then that's game over not only did that not happen but they were all basically scratchless kind of until polka dot man bites the dust i didn't like the plot armor i just don't see the point in it being so contrived if there's a reason if they'd had a conversation and he was like no i'm just gonna spare you guys because i'm a benign starfish that controls people's minds i don't know you let me out and i owe you one or something like that yeah that could have been something oh without you none of this would have happened so i guess i'll let you live but don't touch me but none of that really happened and so i was just kind of like why are they still alive? If I were a giant starfish monster, I would just make sure that they don't survive. I just don't understand. So yeah, that was one of the big things that bothered me about the film that kind of pulled me out. There's no stakes if everyone's fine. And I know that we started off with a five minute super bloody sequence of everyone on screen at that time dying horribly. But these people there's no stakes. I don't know how I feel about it. I think I was more fixated on how brutal the experiments on the people that were infected. The thinker just didn't care about the people that were under the starfish. You had that person that was cut in half with their guts hanging out and they were still alive or still possessed. They weren't alive. It's pretty clear that as soon as Starro took over, the person died and they peeled one off someone's face and their whole face came with it and things like that. Really brutal. So that gave you a sense of what was happening to the people that were getting infected. But yeah, if one of the Suicide Squad had been infected, if they just left someone around for that to happen to, it would have given you some connection to it, Mm -hmm. I suppose, to sort of explain that this is what happens when someone's infected. I don't know who they could have kept alive. Milton? He could have survived until then. <laughs> that would have been funny, actually. <laughs> could have been any of them. I don't know. They were pretty much all dead by then. I guess they all had to have their moment and everybody else was going to survive except Polka Dot Man. Yeah. And all he was doing was swatting them out of the air. He wasn't doing anything special. Whereas Ratcatcher 2 had her mask on, her gas mask, yeah. which was fine. King Shark was just not bothered. They were just slapping off him. It wasn't doing anything. Bloodsport was just... A good shot. Harley was swatting at them as well. She wasn't really doing much. They should have maybe had a character that's connected to our characters that gets infected to 
bring that home a bit. Otherwise, it's just an army of zombies, really. Yeah, exactly. Not much of anything. And then you have this hive mind thing, which they don't really do much with. And I do think it's because Starro couldn't get back into space by itself that it decided to take over this city. But Amanda Waller washing her hands of the whole thing was a bit weird because this is going to be a global problem eventually because it's established that it grows the more people it infects. So eventually it'll just spread out, you would imagine. It's certainly a possibility. Yeah. Well, maybe it's a very ignorant, we'll worry about that when it happens. Or maybe Superman will deal with it. <laughs> I suppose it is one of those situations where Starro's now out. This is probably a time for the Justice League to get involved. Yeah. Maybe. If they exist, we don't know what's happening around <laughs> all that at this point. It's one of those things where this is where you get the real heroes involved. The Suicide Squad, they're fine with taking down buildings or taking down regimes or whatever else. But when it comes to a giant kaiju, that's when you need one of the big guns, really. Not that they had much trouble with it. (laughs) Starro was killed by a bunch of rats. The biggest gun of the film, one would argue. Let's see Superman deal with an army of rats. Actually. Kryptonite rats. I'd watch that fight. Um. (laughs) (laughs) He just gets overwhelmed. They can't kill him, but he also just can't do anything. (laughs) Can't get away from them. Yeah, that'd be great. I think the best sequence for me, though, was them breaking into Jotunheim and... I'm surprised you haven't mentioned how funny it is to hear Idris Elba talking about how he's going to Jotunheim. That's true. I think I had my giggles at the beginning when Amanda Waller was introducing Jotunheim and I was like, come on. (sighs) (laughs) He's right there. (laughs) First of all, DC just pilfering things straight out of Marvel and just not giving a crap. But then also, yeah, like he's right there. Hello. I chuckled heartily at that and then just kind of forgot. I don't think that it is significant as a name, really. And that's kind of a shame. But also, I guess that's fine. Not everything has to be like a big... I mean, you know, it was significant in the Marvel movies for like five minutes. And that was kind of that. <laughs> Arguably some of my favorite five minutes, but regardless. <laughs> I enjoyed that sequence also. I think there's just a wonderful synergy between everybody by that point, which is just very satisfying and works great with the music and stuff. It's just a fun time. But ultimately, something actually that bugs me about Jotunheim is when we finally get to the Starro level and the thinker's kind of walking us through his big nefarious 30-year-old plan, and... There's these people, some of them are like half cut off. They have a big starfish on their face and are just kind of tied up. And that scene really ought to be horrifying. And I think it's shown and presented to be horrifying. But because there's been just so much blood and gore left and right in a comedic fashion, by the time we reach this, the horror element is kind of not there. It's just kind of like, oh, and... There's this guy and he's missing his lower half, but he is still kind of twitching. That sort of thing. It just doesn't have the impact that was intended, I don't think. The crux of my argument, I suppose, the crux of my complaint is if the violence is supposed to be funny, then it can't also be horrifying. The tonal shift was quite stark in a lot of places like that. And so it just doesn't seem to work. But maybe that's just me. I'm sure that a lot of people watching this were just like, oh no, I thought that was cool. I don't think that was meant to be cool. But the rest of it is presented as cool, so I don't know. Uh, I get where you're coming from. It did stand out to me as being horrifying. But I think I was more reacting to the thinker not seeing these people as people. Yeah. 
that to me was more jarring than actually seeing it. Because as you say, by that point, we'd been essentially desensitized to all the Mm -hmm. violence. We'd not five minutes before watched a shark rip someone in two. Yeah. So is someone missing the lower half of their body really a big deal at this point? Exactly. Not really. If it'd been the only thing you'd seen in the film, you'd be like, oh my God, that is grim. But it wasn't. And as you say, there was a lot of violence and a lot of blood and guts and gore and whatever else. You'd seen people exploded and there's so many horrible things that happen to people. But I, I liked the actual sequence, the way it all played out. And then you had the whole five minutes earlier when Ratcatcher 2 was about to be killed by Peacemaker. Yeah. Here's how she's going to get out of this five minutes before. But I kind of thought that King Shark would be the one to save her because of the whole, they're friends and she's put herself forward as his friend. Mm-hmm. I thought that there was a payoff that was demanded there in a way of King Shark to be the one to save her. And then when he disappears off, when they're all planting the explosives, I thought that that was what it was setting up, but it wasn't. It was blood sport. But they also set up that I'll get you out alive, no, I'll get you out alive, back and forth yeah. between them. So I suppose either of them work. Although, weirdly, despite all the violence and whatever, the one bit that did make me wince was where Bloodsport fell and just landed on his feet. Oh, yeah. quite a distance. Why is his legs not caved in? <laughs> yeah, that was my first thought also. But then he started falling through the floors one by one. Yeah, the floors fell with him. Yeah, and I thought that was pretty cool. So I kind of forgot my question kind of immediately. I was like you at the beginning. Wait, you should have broken your legs right now. Because he just lands and then he's fine. When I saw it in the cinema the first time, I was like, Ugh. Yep, oh. <laughs> yep, then, same. Yeah, I was like, was oh fine. no. <laughs> and then the floor just kept caving in and bringing him with it, which was really cool, taking him down all the levels. Yeah. And that's when his mask breaks apart, which seems like it should be stronger than that. It had been through a lot, I think, by that point. So I don't necessarily mind the fact that it broke at all. But yeah, there is a little bit of, is that all it took? But really, it took quite a beating. So I think it's okay. I suppose by that point, they kind of wanted to have Elba's face as opposed to just him wearing the helmet. The time for crazy stunts was done. (laughs) So time to bring the actor... I'm actually surprised by how often he did wear the mask throughout the film, because normally when you have someone of that pedigree playing a masked character, it's any excuse not to wear the mask. Yeah. Such as Will Smith in the last one. Yeah, exactly. He had a mask that he wore like once <laughs> or maybe twice throughout the whole film. Hmm. And even had that line where he said, every time I wear this mask, someone dies. That's a good job. You never wear it then. <laughs> that solves that problem. But yeah, he was wearing the mask more often. And I guess Idris Elba's partial to... Letting a stuntman do the work. He also had it off more often than he didn't, I suppose. Yeah, that's true. But I loved his suit with the modular weapon stuff. That was really cool. Mm-hmm. I like cool stuff like that. There's no explanation of how it works, where he gets all his ammo from or whatever else. It just does. Yeah, doesn't matter. <laughs> where does Peacemaker keep all his yeah. stuff as well? <laughs> all his weaponry doesn't matter. It was cool. And that Jotunheim sequence where it gradually just got torn apart was really cool. And I did laugh a few times at Idris Elba talking about Jotunheim because there's one line where he says, we're going to Jotunheim. Yeah. And you're like, come on. That's where the title card comes up is Operation Jotunheim. Yeah. No, we're going to save Harley first and then it wipes off and it's Operation Harley. Yeah. (laughs) Question. What did you think of the on-screen text being done as part of the scene, part of the set, finding words and soap foam and seaweed and... 
things like that and smoke and tree roots. Forced perspective in one case. Yeah, I really like the forced perspective one. They had like Jotunheim with all the wreckage or whatever. Yeah, with the pipes and stuff on a rooftop. I really like that forced perspective one. The others, I could kind of take or leave sometimes. They didn't quite work. I kind of found my eyes trying to find the text in it. I thought they were creative, although there were some of them I missed. The one that I'd missed the first viewing was the three days earlier one, which was the soap one. Yeah. That's the first one, Mm -hmm. I think. No, it's Warner Brothers Presents as the first one with Michael Rooker's brains. Oh, right. Yes. (laughs) But then you had the three days earlier with the soap. The beach one, I didn't miss it, but I didn't quite make it out. I got them all second time, I think. Mm. I thought it was quite creative and I don't know if it neatly divides into chapters. I don't think it does. So I don't know if there's a specific purpose to it other than this is just a weird visual trick that we're playing yeah. with the scenery and whatever. It's not something that James Gunn's ever done before that I've seen. He doesn't do it in Guardians. Yeah, I, I didn't think of it as a James Gunn thing or whatever. I mostly thought, oh, that's cool. It's creative. But I think there were a couple that someone had a great idea and were like, ooh, we should do this. And so then they kind of had to find ways to do that for every chapter or every location change. Sometimes it worked and sometimes it didn't work. The beach one, I don't think worked. The soap one, I don't think worked either. I like the tree roots above Harley the first time. The smoke thing was cool because it allowed for that change. And my favorite one was the forced perspective on Jotunheim. So yeah, I just think there was a little bit of like a hodgepodge approach to it. Which I suppose is fine. It's whatever. It's not the most significant part of the movie or anything. So, meh. Doesn't make it a bad film that it didn't entirely work for you. Oh, no, not at all. I won't take off a star for the text (laughs) not working. I suppose it's one of those things that if people were desperate to hate the film, they might attack that specifically and just say, it's a crap film because it does this. You know where you find people are insecure about their opinions and they latch on to one particular thing that they're going to hang their entire argument on. It feels like that would be something that someone would hang an entire argument on unnecessarily. Yeah, no, for sure. It does happen. I can't even remember what the uh, 10 minutes ago one was or whatever it was when it shoots you back to the other side of the team to find out why the place started caving in. Yeah, I don't remember it either now that you mention it. Maybe it was just a normal one. I can't remember. Hmm. But it definitely happened and... I think the way that James Gunn plays with continuity in that way was quite clever. Yes. Because it was the, we have the massacre and here's the reveal of the other team. And then here's how the other team came to be here. And then later on, it's here's how we got to this point And it wasn't overused again. And that's what I can say about everything good in this film is that none of it was overused. It was always deliberately deployed. Apart from maybe these title cards, which... This is cool. We can think of like 12 different ways to do these. So it's not that it neatly divides the film into chapters. Because I did try and pay attention to that on my second viewing. And it's not that every 20 minutes it happens or whatever. It's just haphazardly whenever they feel like it. I suppose it's slightly more creative than just having text appear on the screen. But then Harley and Branches. We know it's Harley. We can see her. Yeah. In fact, you showed us Harley before you showed the title. Yeah. (laughs) I think that was just one of those cool, ooh, we should do this. I think that'll be great. Yeah. Sometimes it was to get around just having to tell you something using clumsy exposition. It's, where do we go next? Boom. Creative title card thing. Yeah. So it's okay. I wasn't 
Bothered by it? Bothered, no. I think there were a couple ones where I couldn't really see the text. And so in that moment, I was like, oh, that's kind of pulling me out of the story. Just put the text on. If you don't know what to do or if the shape is a bit too not letter-like. But it was the soap bit specifically where I was like, wait, what was that? Hmm. And then I was like, oh, this must be before the scene we just saw. Okay, that didn't work as intended, I suppose. Okay, so I think we have made our way through this film now. I certainly don't have anything left in my notes to discuss. <laughs> Is there anything we didn't discuss that you want to discuss before we summarize? <laughs> no, I think I got all my hot takes <laughs> on tape. Oh, hot takes. Is it a hot take that I have employment law questions about Amanda Waller's office? I don't know, but I managed to express my frustration so it's all good this could be the only podcast that brings up those big questions yes <laughs> but yes they are valid questions so just as a wrap up what do you have to say about the the suicide squad the the suicide squad yes <laughs> it is a fun watch i will say i didn't not enjoy it i didn't love it either I will probably forget about it as soon as we're done recording this. And I suppose there's a place for forgettable films. I don't think it's James Gunn's best work. I'd rather watch Guardians any day of the week. But it is fun. There's some really cool color work. The red around Harley all the time. It looks really nice. It's shot really well. There's some really cool kind of film grainy effects at one point that I was like, ooh, that looks great. It's made beautifully. And I think that is such an upgrade from the Suicide Squad, not the Suicide Squad. Such an upgrade. From the murky mess that that film was. Yeah, it's just so much prettier to look at. And I think that very much makes a difference. It's also funnier. It's funner. I think the ragtag team works better in this one. And I believe, if I recall correctly, I wanted to like the first film quite a bit, but it kind of fell short. This one, you know, I kind of went in with no expectations. It was perfectly adequate, kind of as I said at the beginning. It's a three-star film for me. Watchable, fun, did not rock my world. And particularly, and I suppose this is the case with a lot of the DC cinematic stuff, is that because it doesn't necessarily have a place within a continuum, and in fact, it seeks to reboot something that was made not even that long ago, the question kind of becomes, where does this movie stand with regards to others of its kind, with regards to other DC films? I always find myself feeling a little funny after I've watched a DC film, and I suppose because I've been super spoiled by just Marvel having their sh** together and putting together like a very well-constructed or at least a narrative that is responsive to each new entry that now I'm like, okay, well, there was this one and that's that and that will be that. And even if John Cena gets a TV show, I hope he does, I'd probably watch some of it. It's already filmed, I think. Oh, that's great. So I'll probably watch some of it, but I just don't know how to just kind of relate to a lot of this stuff when it's so haphazardly. Am I supposed to think of this as a sequel? It's so weird. But yeah, ultimately, not an unpleasant experience, mostly question mark, there's too much blood. That's the tweet. <laughs> so basically Marvel have brainwashed you into always expect interconnectedness and you don't know what to do with this film as a result. A little bit. I mean, mate, 23 movies later, <laughs> and now several TV shows later, yes, I have been brainwashed into expecting interconnectedness. There's something about the interconnectedness of comic books 
that is the perfect medium for this. If we're going to make an interconnected anything, of course, it's going to be based on comic books because there's just all of this stuff that runs separately, but then comes together. And there's all these people who know each other and all of this stuff that happens in the same world. So I guess, yeah, it's just a bit funny now. And I don't expect that they'll ever try to copy Marvel's homework again, because I think that's been done and it hasn't worked. And they'd very much like to keep their money. So I think it'll be interesting to see where things go from here. This is certainly a great entry, if kind of average, but average is fine. It's not bad. It's a perfectly fine three-star film. But is it great? Question mark? I don't know. Maybe the listeners can decide. Well, I mean, I thought it was great. Mm. I had a great time with it. And what you say about the interconnectedness, I guess with the DC films, I've stopped expecting that as such. Mm. Or you read a lot about, we're just playing around, we're just making films and we'll see what happens. And I admire that approach because their approach of let's play catch up, but in less films wasn't working. Mm. It just wasn't. And also the let's react to Marvel's latest billion dollar success and morph our film that we're making at the moment into that didn't work. That's why we got the last Suicide Squad film in the way it is. That's why we got Justice League, the theatrical cut, the way it was. And that's why we've got so many cancelled projects from them because they're just not brave enough to run with it. Or they weren't. Now they are. But this one is very much James Gunn unrestrained. He gets to do whatever he wants here. It's pretty clear that there was very little oversight on him. Yeah, And if there was, it's not visible, which is great. Yeah, absolutely. Just let people do their own thing and then you might get something like this out of it. And the interconnectedness side of it, the last Suicide Squad film beat you over the head with, this is how we connect to it. Yeah, We've got Deadshot here. He was caught by Batman. We've got Captain Boomerang. He was caught by The Flash. And in that film, you're watching it and you just don't care who caught these people because it doesn't make a difference. Whereas here, you have no real indication of who caught them or when or why or what they did. The only mention of anything outside of these characters is Superman. So that tells you that there's a Superman in this universe, but it doesn't tell you anything else. Harley Quinn implies that Joker exists, but it doesn't explicitly tell you, etc. There's all these other villains that don't belong to any heroes, really. They're not the nemesis of any other hero. So they don't do that, and maybe people want that from it. Maybe people don't. I'm not sure. I just know that I had a blast with this film. Since I'm so familiar with the comics anyway, I was happy to just go with all the characters as they were. And I think a lot of people are happy enough to just take it as it is. When it comes to the DC films, this and Shazam are my favourites. I think I probably like Shazam a lot better than this. Or not a lot better, but more than this. Oh yeah, me too. I think it's just a very well put together film. It really is. It's a lot like this in the way that someone just made what they wanted to make. Yeah. And it worked. Shazam was such a good film. 100% agree with you. Yes. I thought it was going to be rubbish. Yeah. Because the trailers made it look like some kind of crappy Adam Sandler thing. What a surprise, right? I was like, A, I don't particularly care about DC things. B, this just kind of looks a bit kiddie. And it wasn't. It was really good, actually. And it had a lot of heart. And it was very fun. And I think what you say is someone made what they wanted to make. And it worked. And that's, at this point, it's what I want from a lot of this Hollywood kind of churning out movies machine is there is still art left in these things. I would argue Shazam, somebody made something they really wanted to make. In the case of The Suicide Squad, it's also made very artfully in a lot of respects. So just let people do this. 
that's what makes cinema fun. It's what makes it what it is. But I suppose at the same time, I mean, it's a larger debate, but there has to be some level of compromise. When you're making a big studio film, it's a common thing in Marvel, isn't it? Yeah. You have to pander to what we want to do with the overall universe in some way. You can do your own thing for a while, and then we have to do our little bits to make sure it all plugs in. And those tend to be the things that people criticise the most. But I understand that the compromise needs to be understood by the people making it in a way. I don't know what compromise James Gunn made, if any. If he did, that's invisible. I don't think there's anything necessarily that he had to put in here. Maybe there could have been things like, you have to put Harley Quinn in here, for example. Hmm. Or something else. I don't know. But the point is that even if there is studio notes or studio demands or mandates, you can hide it if it all feels like part of a piece. And I think everything here feels like it's part of a singular piece. There isn't a point where the film stops and something that shouldn't belong to it starts happening. It just ticks along as it's supposed to. And I really like that. So more of this, please. I'm not crazy on the violence, but just more of these whatever the person making it wants to make thing. And I don't know if DC are necessarily going to connect everything up again at any point or whether they're going to fully commit to this multiverse idea that they want to do. We'll see what the fallout from Flashpoint is when that comes out, I guess. But in the case of this, certainly it feels like its own thing. So to conclude, I really like this film. I had a blast with it. When I watched that second time, I enjoyed it almost as much as I did the first time. In fact, possibly more because I was taking more of it in. I was paying more attention to little tinier bits here and there and whatever else. You know, sometimes they say your second viewing of a film is your best one because you do pay more attention in a way. You're less blown away by everything and you're taking more in, I suppose. Yeah, loved it. Absolutely loved it. And I don't know if we can do this again conceptually. I mean, there's a million... Z-list DC villains that you can throw in the line of fire. But I don't know if we'll be able to pull this off again as well as this. Yeah, I don't know how I would feel about, oh yeah, here's, you would need something unique for the story. You can't really have just the formula of here's a bunch of Z-list villains that nobody cares about. Let's get them killed in spectacular ways. This plot was fine, but you would need to do something else with these people the next. Because even this time, to be honest, having seen the first film, you're just like, oh great, here's the <laughs> same thing. <laughs> DC, what the heck, man? I just, I can't. Here's the same thing, but done right. So I suppose we were due for that concept done right. I mean, I suppose we've kind of circled back around this, but it's a strange one. I mean, the first one was only five years ago. Yeah. Yeah, so that's something, I suppose. So we've had this and we've had it done well, but can we do it again? Possibly not. You'd struggle to find an excuse to get Idris Elba back because he has leverage. Same with Harley Quinn. Mm. Same with Ratcatcher 2. Everybody that survives, really. Peacemaker's already getting his own series, so whatever that will be, I don't know. Maybe it's best we don't get another Suicide Squad movie. We've had the purest version of it that we can get, I suppose. And that's fine. You don't have to have millions of everything. Sometimes doing it once and doing it well is fine. Or doing it twice and doing it well once. But they'll try and do it again. Although I don't think this has been all that successful. The numbers in the US box office were very low. Yeah. Although they've said HBO Max, a lot of people have watched it. Mm -hmm. But they can say that anything with those metrics, can't they? They can just make it up. No one's checking. Uh, the metrics don't necessarily count for us as much as they count for the studio. Them making up the numbers doesn't make them more money. <laughs> no. But it lets someone keep their job for not failing by taking a chance on something, I suppose. I don't know. I guess. Ultimately, it's a weird year for cinema, generally. It would be 
a disappointment if diminishing returns because of people watching on VOD rather than the cinema means less money, therefore not making any more. Yeah, it's precarious. I don't believe that this is the end of cinema as we know it, but <laughs> right now it's a hard time. It's just a hard time for everybody. The combination between R rating plus pandemic plus yeah. simultaneous cinema plus home release mm-hmm. probably doesn't add up to the box office that they wanted. Yeah. But who knows? I don't know. It's not my job to figure this out. <laughs> I'll just watch this. I've watched it. I contributed to its box office twice. Yeah. <laughs> I played my part as far as I'm concerned. Mm-hmm. I'll get it on Blu-ray too when that happens. Anyway, that is us. We have ripped this film to shreds. <laughs> and we have survivors. There are a couple of survivors. So, Kat, thanks for joining and reprising your Suicide Squad streak. <laughs> thanks for having me. Oh, my pleasure. That was our discussion about The Suicide Squad. I'd like to thank Neil Stenson for the supplied music. And I'd like to thank our in-house artist, Isaac, for the artwork. If you enjoyed what you heard, please do subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or any major podcasting app. And if you're on Apple Podcasts, we would love a star rating and a comment. Five stars if you think it's fair. Lower if you don't, but just let us know. If you want to talk about The Suicide Squad, Suicide Squad, or anything else, you can hit us up on Facebook and Twitter under Neil Before Blog, or leave a comment on neilbeforeblog.co.uk. And as always, I hope you'll join us next time on Neil Before Pod. Mm-hmm.